Hi everybody, it's uh, a bit early so I'll just say hello and tell you that I have my uh, lavender reteach breach shirt on for you today. I've uh, got a lot to talk about, but first let me introduce myself. My name is Stuart Fishbein and I am a home birth obstetrician and uh, purveyor of informed consent and shared decision making. And uh, I'm usually here with my sidekick Bliss, but she's off again today. So I'm in my own home office instead of Bliss's kitchen. And we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, thank you for tuning in. I have, uh, um, well, I have a lot of topics today, but first you can uh, write me letters at askdrstew at gmail.com, which a lot of you are doing. You can reach Bliss at birthingblissmidwifery.com. Um, com. that's her website, and you can find all how to contact her there. Instagram, I think you probably know where to find me. It's Birthing, uh, birthing Instincts. Um, and Bliss is a Birthing Bliss Midwifery. And we're only on Facebook Live today because uh, Bliss is the Instagram person, and I'm the Facebook Live person. And Bree, yep, yeah, I'm, I'm back today. Um, it's been a busy week. I've had uh, quite a few bursts, but I had a, got a good break, so I wanted to Again, welcome you as you as you uh, log in. Um, please say hello so I know who's here. Um, uh, let's start out with uh, some some good cheer. Uh, tomorrow is the Jewish New Year, so Shana Tova to any of my listeners who are Jewish or who want to want to be Jewish. Uh, it's going to be a weird year this year, of course, because synagogues are all closed, at least in uh, my community of Los Angeles. I guess I was going to start out with being very positive and uplifting, but but I already got negative because I live in the stupidest state with the stupidest governor and the stupidest mayor. Well, no, there's a lot of ties for the stupidest mayor uh, around, and I guess there's ties for stupid governors too. But what he's what they're doing to the state, the, the com they're committing societal and and professional suicide of our state by shutting down the things that really matter to people. Uh, and I'm not just talking about sporting events and restaurants, I'm talking about the church and synagogue and gatherings of any kind. Uh, the idea, uh, still when I go on the hiking trail now, I still see 80% of the people wearing masks on the hiking trail. Uh, and as I said, I think in one of my previous podcasts that as Heather McDonald calls it, a walking billboard for institutionalized fear. I love that term um, because what it is is a way to project the fact that you're scared or that you've been frightened by somebody who doesn't really believe what they're telling you is true. And we know that from all the, the faux pas and gaffes that they're making when they tell us that, uh, you know, this is dangerous and people are dying. And then you see, you know, I'm not just talking about the Nancy Pelosi's going into hair salons without masks or the mayor's going out and dining in restaurants when they don't let other people do it. But recently there was something that happened in Nashville, which um, I think um, some of you may have heard about, where the mayor in Nashville was suppressing good information. Uh, the fact that the bars and restaurants were responsible for very, very few cases of COVID doing their, their, in their tracking process, but they, they suppressed that information. And then when they got caught, rather than saying, oh, you know, we really got caught, I'm really sorry, I'm going to resign. 
Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging my head in shame. No, they, they push back as they always do. So, you know, this sort of behavior has become the norm in our country where people will do things that are nefarious or at least questionable. And when you question them or when you catch them doing something, rather than admit that they've ever done anything wrong, they double down on how dare you catch me. And, you know, you're just espousing fake news or you're doing this or that and the other thing. There's absolutely no reason that tomorrow morning the Jewish population of Los Angeles shouldn't be able to go to their synagogue and pray with the people that, that matter to them. Um, it's, it's crazy. Okay, so I got, I got that off my chest. Um, let's see, well, I wanted to talk about a couple of things. One good news thing here, which was really um, on my mind, it was about, what did I do with it today? Let's see, oh, here it is. It was about the diagnosis of intrauterine growth restriction. Now, we hear about this all the time, and it's one of the leading causes of physicians telling clients that they need more testing and that they need uh, to be induced in interventions. Uh, yeah, I'm sure, Stephanie, I'm sure your governor there and your, your DA in Philadelphia is worse than stupid, right? He's malicious. Um, but IUGR is a really significant call because, or small for gestational age, whatever you want to call it, uh, the term has been bandied about that anything less than the 10th percentile, you need to worry about it. And people have been, you know, the doctors have this tendency when they get a report like that, or even the maternal fetal medicine doctors, when they see something, they immediately plant seeds of fear and seeds of doubt. For the life of me, I've, I think about this every week. I deal with this every day. I still cannot figure out what it is about their psyche that wants to instill fear in the pregnant women or project their own anxieties into pregnant women. Yesterday, I saw somebody who I saw her for a 20-week ultrasound, referred by a midwife. She had a 10-week ultrasound where she had a placenta previa at Kaiser, and they told her that she should plan for her C-section uh, she should just get it out of her mind. It's a central previa. It's never going to move, and she should plan for her C-section. And so for 10 weeks now, she's been crying and upset and worried. And she comes in for her 20-week scan with me because she didn't want to go back there. And sure enough, the placenta is nowhere near the cervix, not even close. So there's no there's no uh, um, reparations <laughs> to use a common word right now, that this woman can get back from these 10 weeks that she was worried. And with growth restriction, where babies are, you know, or your women are often told your baby's too big, your baby's too small, your pelvis is too small, your husband's so big and you're so tiny, they say these things over and over and over again. And I've always wondered about the idea of the definition of growth restriction and if babies are growing on their own growth curve and they're growing well and their biophysical profiles are normal when you get to the point where you're doing them, then what are we worried about? Why are we inducing these people early? Why are we scaring them? And finally, in um, a journal that's relatively obscure, it's called the Journal of Ultrasound and Medicine. Uh, I get it because I get my continuing education. Um, uh, my, my continuing education numbers that I need every year. 
from the, some of the tests in here. They're, they're actually good tests because I like to do ultrasound. But it's an obscure journal and no one really reads it. But they have a really good article, and I'll get to it in just a second, about um, redefining the definition of growth restriction. And it's so, it's so refreshing and reassuring to me to see someone else put out a common sense article that flies in the face of what most maternal, maternal fetal medicine doctors would say and what most OBs will just repeat or regurgitate. So, but you're right, um, uh, Anna says, I guess they think they do a good job or they do, they do good, otherwise they wouldn't be so common. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, a, it, there's a cognitive dissonance that goes on. We talk about it almost every week. It goes down in the medical community where, because these are not bad people, all right? But I think they're, because they only work in one model, they never see a different model. And every paper that comes out may pay lip service to it, but never, pay, never really lists as a priority what women want or the, women, the woman's psyche or the, the fact that she may not choose that or if she does choose that, that we need to find a way to change the way we word things or, or, or counsel people so we can get them to accept what we think is right. As we talked about with vaccines um, many podcasts ago, how the American College of OBGYN is teaching doctors not about the safety of vaccines or about maybe alternative vaccine schedules, but how to use language to convince the, their clients or the mothers of, of their children that vaccines are normal, rather than saying um, something like the next the next visits it's the time for um, you know the the DTaP vaccine for Johnny. They want you to say something like, "At your next visit, we're going to be giving the DTaP vaccine for Johnny," or just just changing the words around so that you're 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 essentially hoodwinking the, the person because they believe that what they're doing is so honorable and good by any means necessary is okay. And you know what? We're seeing this a lot right now in, um, in the political world. If, if, if certain political parties or political ideologies that shall remain nameless think that what they're doing is okay, then they can censor any speech that's contrary to what they do. And what YouTube and Google and Facebook and Twitter are doing to speech about vaccines, to speech about the lockdown, uh, to speech about the origin of the China virus, the coronavirus, shutting down these people, shutting down dissent. We ought to be really, really scared. All right? We ought to be really, really scared. Hi, Miranda. Okay, so uh, let me get into this article because it's a really good one. And it's called The Trouble with the Curve, which I like. It even has, you know, it even has a catchy title, which I think is really good because you know, most of my podcasts up until coronavirus, I always try to have a clever title because I think it matters to attract people. Not a deceptive title, not a title that has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but a title that is a play on words or something like that. And so this is good because Trouble with the Curve is, uh, I think there was a movie called that, uh, uh, that came out that way. I think it was um, with Justin Timberlake, I, I, I think so. And Amy Adams, I think, was in it, I think. It was actually a good movie, if, if I'm thinking of the right movie. And um, 
And then the subtitle is Pearls and Pitfalls of the Evaluation of Fetal Growth. And the study came out of the University of Washington in Seattle. So still good stuff coming out of Seattle, as long as it's not burning. Um, okay, so the, the objective of the study was uh, says this. Poor fetal growth is one of the most important findings on an obstetric ultrasound. First trimester ultrasound is the most accurate means for dating pregnancies. It's more accurate than last menstrual period, even people with regular periods, because we can't really know when ovulation occurred as compared to when conception occurred, which could be several days later. They're saying that usually vaginal ultrasound will under, underestimate the dates by last menstrual period. So in other words, you'll be a few days younger than you will be by last menstrual period, which in in some circles can, can make, the, they think the baby is farther along, then the baby's actual weight is going to be smaller, and you're going to come up to that 42-week thing sooner too. So as much as we'd like to limit ultrasound, one of the things that is important if you can get people to accept it, especially if their periods are not really accurate, but even when they are, is to get a first trimester ultrasound because everything we do, every lab test we do, every decision we make is based on having accurate dating. And if we're dating is off by even a few days, that can lead to all kinds of misinterventions. Um, even though last semester period dating is still the standard in the country, and sooner, you know, they have to have that because not everybody has access to a first trimester ultrasound, um, or they don't even know they're pregnant until the second trimester. Discrepancies between menstrual and ultrasound dating can lead to overdiagnosis of interuterine growth restriction. This article will demonstrate that as long as the fetal growth falls along a curve that parallels normal growth curves, appropriate growth has occurred regardless of the gestational age and weight percentile that has been assigned to the fetus. Let me repeat that. If you have a baby that you scan at 10 weeks and it's in the 7th percentile, that baby is not growth restricted. And you scan them again at the 20-week scan and it's in the 7th percentile. It is not small for gestational age or growth restricted. And again at 30 weeks or 26 weeks and it's in the 7th percentile. That baby is growing normally. But that report will come back from the maternal fetal medicine doctor saying that that baby is more than two standard deviations below the mean. Therefore, that baby is small for gestational age or growth restricted, whatever terminology you want to use. Therefore, we need to do Doppler studies. Therefore, we need to start NSTs. Therefore, we have to consider delivering this baby early. Everybody I'm talking to, everybody that's listening now, everybody that will be listening, not live, but in the future, if you're in the healthcare, uh, um, you know, obstetrical world, you know what I'm saying is true. You know you've had clients that have come back with these sorts of reports, every single one. The reason this is so important to me is because when I work with, part of it is because when I work with twins, all right, there's always this classic teaching that any twins that are more than 20% discordant, that's, oh, that's, a, that's scary and those babies should be delivered early because it's not, it doesn't matter what their discordance is as long as the discordance remains relatively equal all the way through. So the baby on the 10th percentile, if it's growing on the 10th percentile while the baby on the 45th percentile is growing on the 45th percentile, their weight difference is going to continue to grow because that's what happens on a curve. The spacing gets bigger. 
So their discordance is going to grow, but their growth is okay. I've always known this, but I always felt like a lone voice when I would reassure people that, and they would say, well, that's not what my doctor says, or that's not what this other doctor said, or whatever. And again, if you have any question about that, you can use the biophysical profile, and if the biophysical profiles are great, then that baby isn't in any sort of distress at the Doppler flow studies. But again, you're starting to then end up with all these interventions which you're trying to avoid. So it's nice to see someone else say, if a baby is growing well, that baby does not is not in trouble. It does not need all this surveillance and all this extra testing because we don't really even know what the long-term effects of of lots of ultrasounds are, and especially ultrasounds that that um, where you're using uh, Doppler color flow, which is higher intensity. Ultrasound is a form of non-ionizing radiation, and it is. Um, it, it, you know, we don't know what the effects of it. There have been studies, but none for the last 30 years or so on humans that show that ultrasound can have an effect on the developing fetus. Ultrasounds have only gotten more powerful. Uh, there really is, you know, there is no way to, to actually know that, but we, but we know that we want to protect our babies from things that we're uncertain about. So, you know, some exposure to certain things because the benefit outweighs the risk makes sense, but to repeatedly do it, and to not have an indication for it is wrong, just wrong, okay. So the study had 860 fetuses in it and 216 of those fetuses or 25% were suspected to be growth restricted. Now, if less than the 10th percentile is considered to be growth restricted, how can 25% of the fetuses be growth restricted? And there's two things that I got from reading the article. One is that the population that this institution was seeing was probably slightly skewed. And two is that they're overcalling less than the 10th percentile. Okay. But only six of the 216 fetuses that were less than the 10th percentile developed true IUGR. The other 210 did not. So imagine all that extra testing those 210 fetuses got simply because they were less than the 10th percentile even though they continue to grow on that curve rather than fall off the curve or have diminishing fluid or poor Doppler studies, which are the signs, the true signs of growth restriction. Okay, so here's a problem that I talked about, I think, last time. Um, it's the problem of, of standards or algorithms. It says, all the major societies involved in the performance of ultrasound, obstetric ultrasound, excuse me, have developed guidelines for determining the gestational age and integral growth of the fetuses. So every institution, the American Institution of Ultrasound and Medicine, the Journal of Medicine, the ACOG, the Royal College, the College of New Zealand and, um, and Australia, everyone has their standards for growth. But there's a wide, actually a wide variation in growth. Um, let's see if I have those numbers here. Uh, let's see, there was something about uh, different populations having different sizes. Um, oh, here. So, um, Wilcox, a researcher, found that there were significant in the birth weights of mothers of English-European origin. Average birth weight was 3,357 grams. Afro-Caribbean origin, 3,173, or 200 grams less, which is, what, about 6-7% less. And in the Indian subcontinent origin, uh, a um, little less than 3,100 grams, you know, or close to... 
seven, 8% less. So you, you have to take into account in evaluating growth and weight, you have to take into about genetics, maternal characteristics, fetal size. Sometimes I'll look at a, a baby and I'll see that it's in the 12th percentile, eighth percentile. And it's the first scan I'm doing on them. And I'm wondering, is this a normal baby? It's not, the environment looks normal. And then I'll take a look at the mom. And the mom is five foot one and the dad is five foot nine. All right. So that's a normal baby. But if you only go by what the algorithms pre-programmed into your ultrasound machine say, then that baby's going to come out listed as less than the 10th percentile. That's going to be on your report. And therefore, you're sort of obligated to comment on that. So we have to be really careful about relying on the nomograms and algorithms that are stuck into these ultrasound machines that we're using. Um, a fetus that is scanned for the first time at uh, 14 weeks or less generally has a variance of up to uh, five days. So it's much more accurate. By the time you get to 30 weeks, the error of a scan is plus or minus about three weeks. So somebody comes in at 30 weeks for their first ultrasound and they're only measuring 27 and a half weeks. Well, that's probably more than two standard deviations below the mean, but it's in the normal range for the variance of ultrasounds at that point. So if the environment looks good around that baby, you do not need to label that baby IGR. As a matter of fact, it's a mistake because you're planting these seeds of doubt again. What you need to do is get another ultrasound down the road to see if the baby's growing on that curve or has it been falling off a curve and it was much bigger before because you don't know. Hearing on the side of caution is what we all tend to do. I'm not sure it's always the wisest thing to do. If the environment around the baby looks good, um, maybe it, maybe planting these seeds of doubt and the psychological damage that we're doing is, is maybe it's doing much more harm than, than, than holding back and being a little more optimistic and just saying, I want to see you back, but everything's fine. Um, it's a lot of the how you put it. And again, I hear from lots of different women who are coming to me for second opinions and they all, a lot of them say the same thing. They all say that, you know, they were not given much time. They, they weren't able to answer questions. The doctor said some things that seemed scary to them, um, like, the, like the placenta previa at 10 week ultrasound. I mean, that's just stupid. It's really stupid to do that. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've seen a woman come in for a second opinion because doctor at the 20 week ultrasound saw a, you know, a small echogenic focus in the left ventricle and uh, told her it's probably nothing but come back in six weeks. You know, it's kind of like, you know, don't think about elephants. So what do you think about? So, you know, don't worry about this, but, but come back in six weeks. We'll just check it. And so for six weeks, she's worried about it. Um, I think these things are said so routinely and they've been going on for so long. It's that long habit that, that people don't even realize what they're saying and how it's being absorbed by the, the, the clients that they're speaking to. Um, let's see, let's get out of the weeds here. They do say something I love. They say determining the etiology for growth restriction needs to be individualized in each case, right? Don't see that in a paper very often. You generally see only um, that the baby's growth restricted because it falls into this category. But let's figure this out. I mean, let's figure out why. Is it nutritional? Is it 
constitutional? Is it uh, genetic? Is there something else going on? Um, don't lump everybody into the same basket. Uh, the diagnosis of IOGR also relies on a combination of clinical and ultrasound findings such as amniotic fluid indices, umbilical cord arterial Doppler examinations, and the presence of fetal fat within the fetus. And these things can be seen on ultrasound, and these are the things we're looking for. And if fetuses have those things, even if they're small, again, to label that baby IOGR is just wrong. Okay. So lastly, they get to the discussion. Um, again, we get to, get to a lot of weeds here. All right, so once again, guys, uh, my video disappeared. So if one of you guys could let me know that you can still see me, I'd appreciate it. I have no idea why this happens. And if anybody has an idea why it happens, I'd love to hear you from hear from you on that too, okay? Um, even if menstrual dates are considered certain, ultrasound is still more accurate for calculating expected date of delivery. Numerous studies have shown that dating by ultrasound biometry in the first half of pregnancy is more accurate than using menstrual dates. Um, they found that menstrual dates assigned a gestation 2.8 days further along on average than ultrasound dating. And again, this can be a problem, especially in a state like mine where you have the midwife 42-week rule. Um, I, think, I think that's okay. So I just want to read the, uh, the, the summary here. The shape of the growth curve is more indicative of fetal health or growth restriction than the dating and especially the weight percentile assigned to the fetus when there is a size date discrepancy exists. In conclusion, as long as the fetal growth falls along a curve that parallels normal growth curves, appropriate growth has occurred regardless of the gestational age and weight percentile that have been assigned to the fetus. And concerns regarding growth restriction should be alleviated by this result. Thank you, Miranda. When a fetus is determined to have a declining growth curve irrespective of gestational age and without reliance on arbitrarily determined weight percentages, then secondary signs of fetal distress, including oligohydramnios, abnormal umbilical cord Doppler findings, diminished fetal fat, stress testing, and close clinical surveillance, including fetal heart rate monitoring, are indicated to optimize timing of delivery. All right? So it's not the percentage that the baby's in, it's the curve that the baby grows on. And um, so when you have clients to come to you whose doctors are telling them, or the MFM told them that they have growth restriction, Take this into account, all right? You can refer them to this article, uh, or just refer them to, refer them to, you just contact me, and I'll send you the link to the article, because um, I can pull it up online, because I, I'm a member of the, this journal. Okay, so let me know if you have any thoughts on that. I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the bursts we've had uh, in the past couple, it's a past, I think it's been two weeks now since we've been on. So, uh, let's see, everybody heard about the twin, the VBAC twins, because that's been great. Now, we had twins again down in San Diego, and we've also since had twins up in Santa Barbara. Yes, I'm crazy. I am a crazy person, okay? So, good. Thank you, everybody, for telling me that you can see me. Yeah, I don't want to reload it, because then the whole thing will disappear. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm a tech troglodyte, so... Um, and as long as you can see me, I don't need to see me. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, so yeah, so I'm, 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 I'm trying to reevaluate my life a little bit. You know, taking people in San Diego is, I can't say no. Taking people in Santa Barbara, I can't say no. 
But having people with twins or breaches due in those two locations at the same time does put a lot of added stress upon me. So I have to figure it out. And I'm thinking, and maybe I'll take your opinion on this too, guys, um, if you want to write in. What do you think about the possibility of me working in a birth center here in Los Angeles and asking people to forego home birthing if they live far away? and having them relocate and coming to deliver at the birth center uh, or in an in a Airbnb that's close to the birth center because all this driving uh, and lack of sleep and being on the road, really, really hard. And I, I don't want to say no to people. And I love home birthing probably more than anything else. I don't really want to make a woman get in her car and drive anywhere. But every woman I take into practice now, I have to tell them that there's a chance, you know, that I could be in San Diego and you're in labor up in Thousand Oaks. And that adds anxiety and stress to them. And I'm not sure which is worse. I can't not tell them because that's not my nature. And, um, but if I tell them, then they're going to be nervous about me not being there. Uh, but that's better than, than telling them I can't take them and them having no options. And since I don't see any immediate options developing as far as alternatives for home birthing with a physician uh, for breaches and twins, I want to give a shout out to uh, Victoria Flores. She's a new physician in Southern California. She's going to be locating uh, out near Riverside um, in the Yucaipa, Palm Springs, San Bernardino areas. Um, but she, right now she does not have the, uh, the skill and she admits it to do breaches or twins on her own. So it's going to be hard for her to get that training. She might spend some time with me, but I, I don't know how that's going to work if she's going to have her own practice out there. Uh, but for those people who would be out there in, uh, those areas who are looking for a physician, um, you've got, you, you may very well have a choice now. Her name is Victoria Flores and I'm sure she's fine. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it is hard to, it, burning myself out is an issue. I just had a great summer, so I'm not burned out right now, but I'm always nervous about two people being in labor and having to let somebody down because there's a possibility that I would have to tell somebody, listen, I'm sorry, I can't make it to your birth. You have to go to the hospital and have a C-section. Um, and Alicia thinks I should too. And I, I, I think uh, I have opportunity. There's a couple of birth centers over here on the, uh, in LA that, that I love. And um, I'm, uh, I'm thinking about it. So I'm going to keep sounding you out. I need, I, it's hard, change is hard for me. It's really hard for me uh, to make changes. And I know that I should. Thanks, Alicia. <laughs> Sweet comment. Okay. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the twins in San Diego. So here's an interesting one. She, um, she ended up with cholestasis. She was a Kaiser uh, client uh, getting concurrent care with Kaiser. And they were all over trying to get her to be induced. Um, even though her uh, serum bile salt levels were only in around the 29 to 30 range, uh, anything above 10 is considered abnormal, but the papers, uh, most of the really good papers on whether to intervene on for interhepatic cholestasis of pregnancy 
say that you don't see the stillbirth issues until the values get up near 100 or over 100. And so she was on medication for the itching. Her liver tests were minimally abnormal and then they actually normalized, but her, her uh, bile salts remained elevated. Uh, she got to about 39 weeks, 39 weeks in a day or so. And she was, uh, had a really good cervical exam, but she was going crazy. She said, the medicine isn't working more. I'm itching so much. Can you do something? So we did elect to do something. We went around and we did a membrane sweep on her. And I think that's all it really took. And she went into labor. And uh, although it took a while, it did take a while. She sort of had another false alarm. She had a false alarm a few days earlier where I had driven all the way down and then driven all the way home again. <laughs> Same thing happened in Santa Barbara, which I'll get to in a minute. So, um, uh, but we have a wonderful midwife down there, Nicole uh, Morales, who many of you may know. Did a great job and got her into labor. The team got down there. We sat around and uh, suddenly baby A was here. She delivered baby A standing up in the bathroom. Um, and then uh, baby A had a bit of a short cord but did great. Uh, we couldn't pull her up all the way to the chest. And uh, after about 30 minutes or so, not really much was happening. Baby B's heart rate was fine. But then, um, uh, because I don't like to see twins go more than about 30 or 40 minutes between, uh, between deliveries because of the increased rate of, of postpartum hemorrhage and the increased rate of uh, second babies having uh, more hypoxia and needing a little more respiratory assistance, uh, we broke her bag of waters, and shortly thereafter, baby B also came out vertex, um, and uh, they did great, and they did great for several hours, um, but eventually, baby A persistently had uh, rapid breathing, even though O2 sats were great, oh, and, oh, and mother had, by the way, before I get to that, mom did have a significant postpartum hemorrhage, but the team was great. Uh, one of the midwives slapped in an IV really quickly. We got some Pitocin hanging. We gave her some IM Pitocin and some uh, rectal mesoprostol. And then I did what I normally do, which is a very vigorous bimanual massage with pressure. And we were able to get it under control. Um, her vital signs stayed stable. And actually, surprisingly, within a day or two, she was up on her feet. Never had any problem with urine output. Never had any problem with dizziness. But I put her down as losing about 1,800 cc's of blood, which is, you know, significant amount of blood. It was a lot. Great team. It's always good to have a great team. Be prepared. Have all your stuff ready. Have all your stuff out. Um, anyway, so uh, when everything was stable and the baby seemed stable, I, I went back to L.A. And uh, Nicole watched the baby for a while. And the baby was still breathing a little bit fast, but, but had a good, good sat. So we let the baby stay overnight, came back in the morning. And the baby was still breathing with a respiratory rate, I think it was 92, which is way too fast, a day out. O2 sats were still above 95%, uh, even higher, I think. Uh, but we decided to transport the baby um, to the hospital via car. Uh, the baby ended up having a small spontaneous pneumothorax, which is the second one that I've seen in my home birthing career. Um, there's no explaining why that happens. It just happens. And you don't, uh, in an adult, when you have a, a pneumothorax, you put in a chest tube with babies, you just put them on, I think, supplemental oxygen, or just even, you just observe them, and eventually they get better, and, and so they did. 
And then baby B, uh, after baby A was taken to the hospital, baby B started to get lethargic. And it was really hard to explain what was going on with baby B. So uh, we took baby B to the hospital. I think it was the second or the third day postpartum. And uh, that baby B's vitals and all that were fine. It's just that uh, we, we ultimately think that baby B missed baby A. And I know that that's not very scientific, but that's what it seemed like. So... Um, everybody's home now and uh, they're fine. Oh, <laughs> to make Paris even funnier, or not so funny, on the first postpartum day they had they had a plumbing explosion in their house and their house got flooded. So, yeah, it never rains; it floods. So it, it's it was a lot for them, and they had another child besides. So um, again, the success rate with multips uh, having twins with me is extremely high. And, uh, but they wouldn't have traded it for anything. And so, you know, it'll make a great story uh, somewhere down the road and everything's sort of back to normal. They had a good support system down there. Um, so congratulations to them. Um, I also had, I think, two breaches this past week. Uh, one delivered vaginally um, at a birth center in Thousand Oaks. And the other one uh, was a home of Primip. They both were Primips. The other one was a home primate, and she got to about uh, six to seven centimeters and essentially never got past that. Ended up getting transported to the hospital for a uh, cesarean section as her only option. But we took her to a place where her husband could be in the OR, and they were supportive, and they let the doula into the hospital, and the surgeon was, did his best to make the... Um, C-section as friendly as possible. That's Dr. Jamie Lapellis down at Little Company Mary. For those of you that live in the um, SoCal area, you'll know. And they felt like they had a really good experience there. They, they, some of the requests were honored. You know, they didn't want hepatitis. They didn't want injectable vitamin K. They were going with oral. Um, they didn't uh, do anything that the hospital didn't want them to do. I, I think they took their placenta. Uh, they left on day two or maybe it was day three post-op, post discharged a pro, uh, uh, normally. They didn't leave against medical advice, anything like that. Um, and then I'm going to get back to their story in a second. I just want to talk about the other set of twins in Santa Barbara so that you guys know that this was a primate twin. She went to 39 weeks and five, well, six days by the time she delivered, but at 39 weeks and Three days, I think she broke her bag of waters just before midnight, and uh, 50 hours later, she still hadn't gotten past about two centimeters. I think it was two centimeters. Yeah, about two centimeters. And so and she was exhausted, and so she went in for the option of, of we had one wonderful physician, Dr. Drake, up in uh, Santa Barbara, who was willing to give her the chance to deliver vaginally, even though Baby A was vertex and baby B was sort of breech transverse. But shortly after she got there, um, was on the monitor before they even, after the epidural was placed, but before they even started Pitocin, uh, baby A started having D cells and uh, ch the fluid did change from clear to meconium. So she ended up going and having a C-section for her mono dye twins. Um, and interestingly enough, the babies weighed exactly the same amount. Um, they were both five pounds, 14 ounces, which is great for twins, even though she's 39 and 
five weeks, 39 weeks and five days. She was told by somebody in the nursery that the babies were uh, small for gestational age. And that concerned her. And then she, they, somebody let me know that. And of course, I sent them a graph of twin births. And five pounds, 14 ounces for twins at, at 40 weeks is about in the 20-something percentile. It is not small for gestational age. These babies were growing on their own growth curve. And how apropos could our first subject be about the fact that, that these babies were normal for their growth? And um, yet, for whatever reason, someone in the hospital, uh, maybe they looked at the singleton growth curve, but even what difference does it make? The babies were both healthy, they were both the same weight, um, but somebody had to let them know that their bilirubins, uh, their cord blood bilirubins were a little high. Okay, now again, I don't know too much about what goes on in hospitals anymore, but why are you checking cord blood bilirubins? on babies you do that on every baby is that something that's new is that something that's being standardly done at hospitals now if anybody knows let me know um but um so i don't know the numbers were 3.9 and 4.4 i don't know what that means on the first day of life is that high is it normal uh but they they they, they planted those seeds of fear even though um we have Billy lights at home if they wanted to go home and all that and all that. And I haven't heard back from the last couple of days regarding the Billy Rubin. I think it's not an issue, but it certainly was seeds of doubt were planted about the baby being small, which they weren't, and the babies having these Billy Rubins, which no one knows what they mean. Um, and again, it's just a way of communicating, a way of talking to people that the art of medicine is being has been lost completely. The art of idea that you're dealing with the human beings who not only are they brand new parents who don't know a whole lot, but they've just been through a labor that has been more than two and a half days and they're exhausted and you're coming at them with this stuff after they've come from a, you know, a place where they understood the anxieties because they were followed by some of the doctors up in Santa Barbara for part of their pregnancy. And they know that's sort of why they ended up switching and changing and trying to stay away from the far away from the hospital as possible but they ended up in, in, in this setting anyway. So, um, but I'm hoping that they'll probably be coming home today. I haven't looked at my phone this morning, uh, or not recently. So that'll be great. But, uh, um, so another two sets of twins, another two breaches in the last week and a half. I still have uh, three more breaches. And every time I, it's kind of like the old story where you have all these little kids sleeping in a bed and they all roll over and one falls out, but another one comes in and, it just, it, you know, it, it just keeps replacing itself. And that's why I talked about earlier about maybe having everybody come to me because people are all over the place. The only saving grace has been the traffic in Los Angeles since the lockdown hasn't been anywhere as bad as it used to be before the lockdown. By the way, today is the first day. And again, I was out earlier this morning where I, I saw some blue sky today, but it's been apocalyptic here um, in Southern California. Uh, I don't think I remember it ever being this bad since the early 80s when I first moved here and they still had smog um, and they were, they were in the brownout days. But the, it, the air here, even though I didn't, it, I didn't know anybody with, who was coughing or wheezing, it, the air here was just, it smells like smoke, it's hazy, you couldn't see the skies, you can't see stars. It was, it was been, it's been crazy. Uh, it's a weird time. It's a really, really, really weird time in America. Uh, probably the rest of the world too for anybody listening overseas but I you know I only know what I know 
so anyway, I want to get back to my last topic of the day because I think, yeah, good, we got plenty of time. So my last topic of the day is, you know, what's the deal with people being able to ruin other people's lives anonymously? Okay. Founding fathers, the founding fathers put the First Amendment in there as free speech, all right? But they never imagined that free speech could be anonymous. Their free speech was people going to the public square, standing on a stoop, and talking to people without a bag over their head, without a shield blocking them. There was no virtual uh, talking. There was no aliases or anonymouses um, in the public square. And if you wanted to accuse somebody of something, if you wanted to debate somebody with something, you did it as the person that you are. You didn't do it anonymously. And just recently, whether you love him or, or dislike him, doesn't matter. Um, the Atlantic did a uh, hit piece on President Trump where four anonymous people claimed that he said some mean things about or some horrible things about fallen soldiers. All right. Now, I mean, I follow the news pretty well, and, I, and there are a lot of people, including John Bolton, who doesn't like the president, came out and said this never happened. And you follow him, and, and he may say mean things about Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden or lion, crying Chuck Schumer or anybody else he talks about. But for him, it's out of character for him to say anything regarding um, the, 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 the fallen, uh, fallen soldiers, heroes. And yet, and yet it, it gets published. So... Why does it get? Why does something like that get? Why does something like that get published? What's the whole point of publishing anonymous complaints? And why is it that people can go on Yelp or go on uh, uh, Amazon on your book or a book review and and make up a fake ID and and slam your restaurant or slam your book or or troll you on Facebook with a, with you know and not have to identify who they are? All right. I'm all for free speech, but I think that free speech means standing up and taking taking credit or responsibility for the for your speech. And I really do think, and I hope that somewhere down the road, and I don't know that we seem to be going in the opposite direction, but somewhere down the road, we ban anonymous um, posting. I don't think you should be anonymous. If you do, if you can't stand behind your post, then don't post it. All right. So the reason I'm saying that is because. Not only because President Trump was slandered anonymously, but I recently had to deal with the California Medical Board because of an anonymous complaint. I mentioned this a couple podcasts ago. An anonymous complaint about a, a, a patient who they didn't know who it was. All right? And for more than a year, the medical board uh, um, person, I don't know what his title is, um, investigator, I guess, would be his best title, um, was pursuing me, wanting me to ask me questions about an anonymous complaint. So they had no idea who complained. They had no idea what hospital it took place at or whether it was a home or whatever. They had no idea. All they knew was uh, some obscure facts or obscure information that weren't, that weren't even facts. And, and, and they can pursue that, and they have up to three years to harass me about a complaint that I don't get to know who complained. How is that possible that that you can like I could sit in my own little room here right now and I could write really 
mean letters about certain physicians to the medical board, mail them anonymously, and cause these physicians to have to deal with the medical board and hire an attorney and all that stuff. That's, you know, it's just not right. As much as it sounds like fun, it's not something that, that a good person would do, somebody with traditional values would do. All right. So I would never do that, even though a lot of these doctors deserve to be investigated for some of the things that they say. That's not my job to do that. If as a woman or a client or a husband, you want to report somebody to the medical board, you can do that. But I don't think your claim should even be anonymous. I don't think you have the right to be anonymous. I think the doctor you're complaining against has the right to know who's complaining. Okay? It doesn't do any good to be hiding. It's just not right. And the reason I'm saying that now is because the, the lovely couple who had a breech baby at the hospital down at Little Company of Mary came home, and on the second or third day after they were home, about five days or so after the baby was born, the husband went out to the market, and I don't know if these people were sitting there waiting until the husband left or not, because he was almost never gone, but while he's gone, Child Protective Services knocks on the door where this woman's home alone with her baby, with her newborn baby and her and her healing C-section scar, okay, and 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 is investigating an anonymous complaint from somebody, okay. Now, first of all, the intimidation factor when you don't know anything about this um, completely freaked her out, and then and her husband freaked out, and they called the, the midwife called me. We gave them some insight into what not to do, like don't let them in, uh, don't respond to them, ask them for their card, tell them your lawyer will contact them, that sort of thing. But the idea that these people show up and tell you that we are here to investigate you, but we can't tell you why, and we can't tell you who sent us, that is, that's something out of, the, uh, uh, out of the gulag. That is not American. And any of us who do this, we should stop succumbing to anything that's anonymous. And I would tell everybody that's listening now or in the future that if you get an anonymous complaint from the medical board or the nursing board or Child Protective Services or some other institution, you have no obligation to respond to that. Okay? You should never talk to anybody if they show up at your door or your office. You kindly say, well, thank you very much for being here today. I will take your card. My lawyer will be in touch with you. Do never, ever, ever, because they're not there to clear you up. Okay? They're not there to exonerate you. All right? All right? They're not. All right? And the idea that we have to respond to something that's anonymous isn't fair. And, and we shouldn't do it. And I regret following my lawyer's advice and having a conversation with the person from the medical board because all it did was open up a can of worms for them to ask me questions about things that had nothing to do with the anonymous complaint about the unknown patient. Okay. So, you know, now I've got to deal with, now I'm sitting there waiting to see if that leads to something else. So it's a no-win situation. It's really awful. And I think that we, um, as a collective group, should not try to uh, cooperate with these people unless they let us know who's complaining. All right? I mean, it's, no one goes to trial. You have a right, you have a right, a constitutional right to face your accuser. 
All right. Now, I guess that this is this is administrative stuff. It's not a trial, so it probably isn't necessarily covered by the Constitution, but it certainly should be, and it certainly should be adjudicated. No more anonymous stuff. So YouTube and, and Yelp, you know, stop it. Stop it. Not YouTube so much as, as um, Amazon and Yelp. Stop it. Um, uh, stop it. Stop it. Accepting anonymous complaints. And people in the comment section of the New York Times or the LA Times. All right, you know, make people identify themselves. Don't have some like, you know, itchy finger in in uh, San Bernardino, California says. No, 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 no. Stop that. Okay, have them have their name. You know, and how do we know it's their real name? Well, they the 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 um the newspaper can can find out before they allow them to post because you have to register in order to post comments on any, any site like the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or whatever else, that you have to register. They know who you are, but they don't have to release who, they, who you are to the person that you're insulting. I know this for a fact because years ago, I went after the Ventura County Star to find out who was posting lies about me and my, my team. And they, would not, they, would, they went to court to, uh, to suppress my, my request. They fought me in court about getting the names of the, uh, the, of the anonymous people that were saying, that were slandering me or, yeah, libeling me, libeling me in writing. So we need to stop this. It, this the, all this, this anonymous stuff has to stop. Okay, so... Um, yeah, I got other stuff to talk about, but I'm not going to get to it today, as usual. I did want to make a correction from last time. I said uh, something, and one of my clients' uh, husbands caught me on this because I was mistaken about the volume of whiskey that a fifth is. All right, a fifth of whiskey is actually a, like a bottle of whiskey. It's 750 milliliters, and I said that a woman that they did an alcohol study where women drank a fifth of whiskey a day. And only 17% of their babies had fetal alcohol syndrome. But I actually think it was a pint, which is half of a fifth. Must be a tenth then, okay? Um, it's, uh, it's 375 uh, cc's. So I just want to correct that. So if you, anybody was going to try to check me out and drink a, a fifth of whiskey a day, I apologize to you. You don't, don't drink a fifth of whiskey a day. Um, and, and don't even drink a pint of whiskey a day. But if you need a glass of wine at night or a shot of whiskey because you can't sleep or because your uterus is having false labor for the third night in a row or something like that, you know, obviously talk to your practitioner first, but take it from me. There's absolutely nothing wrong with doing that unless, of course, you are an Alcoholics Anonymous or, you know, an addict and, and you're not supposed to be, uh, then that's obvious. Okay? So... I don't wonder if I have anything else that I can immediately talk about. No, I think that that's it. Oh, I have um, oh, one quick last thing. One quick last thing. Um, somebody wrote me about the Butterfly Ultrasound Machine. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the Butterfly Ultrasound Machine. Uh, it's, it's a thing that plugs into your iPhone. Uh, it costs about $2,000. I think it came out around 2017. And she says, I'm curious if you or Bliss have an experience with the Butterfly and if you would recommend it as an adjunct to practice, I know midwives are using it and loving it. I'm not a huge proponent of serial ultrasounds, but understand their effectiveness for some purposes. I mean, the butterfly just takes, you can, I wouldn't do anatomy scans with the butterfly, but it actually, for finding a heartbeat, 
checking fetal position, doing a crown rump length. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's fine. Uh, you know, obviously we've lived without it for this long, midwives especially. But I think that you know, if we're going toward more technology, it seems like a very reasonable thing to do. I don't know what the output is as far as non-ionizing radiation, and you should really look into that. But I think it's uh, it's it's not a, a problem. A woman comes in at 10 weeks with some spotting or bleeding, and instead of having to send her to the ER or sending her to my office or another doctor's office, you could quickly scan her. They don't have a vaginal probe for it as far as I know, but you could scan her belly, and if you see an empty sac or you see nothing in the uterus, um, you can be very comfortable that she's actually completing a miscarriage. Uh, you can diagnose an early intrauterine fetal demise or a blighted ovum and then give them information. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, if you have $2,000 laying around. Uh, but before I buy anything, by the way, I would, I would get the rep to bring me one and I would sample it and I would use it. To, you know, they're not going to make you buy it without trying it. Uh, so try it first. Use it a few times on some demos, and then see if you like it. So that's from Astrid in Steamboat Springs. So Astrid, yeah, I think um, it could be useful. It certainly could be useful. She says also for maybe retained tissue and postpartum. Maybe I don't know how the. I don't know. I've never seen it used. I don't know the accuracy of it is. I don't know if it works well in people with high BMIs. But certainly for finding a heartbeat or determining whether a baby's breech or twins. Uh, you can do that um, with this little device. And it's a lot cheaper than getting a, a used, um, even a used uh, ultrasound machine. It's going to be a lot more money than that. Okay, so we're at a full hour today. So I really want to thank you for listening as always. Um, so once again, uh, this has been Dr. Stu's podcast. Don't really have a number anymore. Don't really have titles for them. They're just called Non-Fireside Chats. This has been number 15. I think we're gonna be switching. Uh, we might be off for a week and then we're gonna be switching to Wednesdays, I think, at around 10 in the morning uh, because it's better for Bliss. Bliss just can't do Fridays anymore. And that's been our time. So if people want to uh, let me know if Wednesday mornings around 10 o'clock would be a reasonable time to do it, just put it in the comments on the Facebook page and I will try to read them. I've been really bad about that. Um, I know that you have lots to do with your time and again, spending an hour with me in your car or right now live for the people that were live with me, Miranda and Anna and, and uh, Alicia and uh, Anna and Ira and uh, boy, uh, who's not here today? My usual, but Hannah's not here today. Bree, thank you. Um, uh, we thank you for giving us an hour of your time and hope that you always will learn something from, from what I'm saying. I think the take-home message today is that uh, a small baby doesn't have to be INGR, it doesn't have to be worrisome if it's growing on its normal curve, and uh, stop with the uh, anonymous bullshit, okay? Everybody else have a great week and a happy uh, new year, Shana Tova, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.